Let's uh, remind ourselves this morning of God's Word. We are going to pick up in our study in John 15. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd ask you to join me there. We're just going to read verses uh, 1 through 11 again, just to kind of remind ourselves of where we were last week and where we will finish up in verses 8 through 11 today. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, that is, that, I'm sorry, that, I'm sorry, that it may bear more fruit, excuse me. Already you are clean because of the word that was spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in a vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Church is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So uh, we're going to pick back up here and, and try to do part two in our passage together this morning. We, we started this last week, um, and, I, and I, as I was studying, preparing for last week, it became very clear to me that I wanted to take this last couple of verses of, of uh, this vine and vine dresser and the, and, the, and the branches and just really kind of focus in on verses 8 and 11 just a little bit separately from the whole because in this passage we get to really consider what the purpose of our fruit is, what the purpose of God's, uh, of God wanting us to desire to produce this fruit inside of us and, 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 the, and, and how that then is then manifested through our lives. Uh, last week we saw in this first part of how we bear fruit, the source of our fruit, which was, is God himself. God is the one who's the source of our fruit. Like you and I don't produce the fruit, God produces the fruit in us. Um, very critical, very critical to understanding um, our lives and what Christian maturity looks like in our lives. Um, and, and frankly, it's extremely comforting to us if we under-recognize that it's God who's doing the work in us. Um, and then we talked about the means of that fruit, which of course is a body in the vine. He has sent Jesus is the vine, right? Jesus is the one who connects us to God and is the one that nourishes the vineyard that God has created. And that's what we talked about last week. And so today we're going to consider really a third point. And it's really this purpose of bearing fruit. Namely, as we see here in verse 8, the glory of God is the primary purpose of our fruit. That is the reason why you and I should want to bear fruit. This is why we should be ever increasingly asking God to bear fruit in us. What does it say there? Let's just read it ourselves. By this, my Father is glorified. Got it? By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
Again, our summer summary from last week will sit, will sit nicely for us this week. As we await the return of Jesus, we are created and called to bear God-glorifying fruit through the true vine, Jesus. Amen. And it's really going to be focusing on this bearing God-glorifying fruit that we're going to centrally think about this morning. Because again, this is the apex of bearing fruit, that we would glorify God. That God would get the glory from the things that are changing in our lives. Now this idea of glory, all of us have heard it, we've used the word glory, and it's a funny word if you think about it. It's something that impacts every one of our lives. And we may not use this word glory in your everyday life, but the reality is, is that when you think about it in its, in its sense that everything that motivates us, and it can be a, many different things that motivate us, but there's not one thing and not one person is excluded from this list that is not motivated for some kind of glory. Whether that's glory for themselves, right, or glory for God. We will either do what we do for our own vainglory, or we will do what we do for some other glory. Sometimes that other glory, as we probably see in our world today, is this kind of ethereal glories, right? These glories of um, some ideal that we have elevated, our culture has elevated, as ultimate, and that, that ultimate glory is the, by, is the thing by which we judge the entire world, is the thing by which we, we condemn the world, is the thing by which... We are controlled in the world. And, and, and listen, not to use this word, I actually use this word very delicately. This is what we see in our culture today, using the word woke in a very general sense, right? Because what we do is we redefine what is good. We redefine what, it just, what means to be judged and what is ultimately how people are to be judged by rather than what God has revealed about what judgment is, Right? And so I don't mean to get into this in some sense of like some kind of angry, you know, anti-woke guy, but just the fact that this is really the world we live in. We see it everywhere in our, in our world today. Not that we need to go out there and just be the hunters of this, right? And always be trying to, you know, be, play gotcha with people, but that we actually recognize that this is the very fabric of our world, whether it's the pro-choice movement, the marriage equality movement, the PETA, financial liberty and financial freedom, economic equity, religious liberty, or religious restriction, Every one of us are motivated, uh, and most of us are motivated by these kinds of glory sometimes if we're not careful. It's just what makes the world go round. It's here, does it not? Watch your favorite television show. Man and I like to watch our favorite programs from time to time, and I just, you can't help but see it everywhere. What really drives the bus in our world today is a pursuit of some glory. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is the things that we find glorious actually glorious? And for the Christian, you and I step back from this and we go, no, they're not. Because there's really only one being, one central reality that is actually glorious in the world, and that's God himself. And that when you and I as Christians, we must constantly be redirecting, resetting the, 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 the standard of what truly is glorious. And we do this by our fruit. Amen. We are showing the world what is truly glorious by the work of the Spirit in our lives, by, by showing them this and redefining, if you will, or refocusing what glory actually is. So then, glory, whatever we have deemed it to be glorious, is that which makes our world go round. And again, we must ask the question. Every one of us has to answer, ask it, whether or not we want to or not. Is that which we ascribe glory truly glorious? And if not, what is? What is? And again, for the Christian, this 
question is preeminent. And it's put right in front of us here in verses 8 through 11. By this, my Father is glorified. That is the central reality for the true believer. God's glory and God's glory alone has to be everything that drives us as God's people. Everything that drives us. And so when we think about this passage about bearing much fruit, this is really important. Because when we misunderstand what it means to bear fruit, when we misunderstand what the implications of bearing fruit are, what ends up happening is we, we see our fruit less about who God is and more about who we are. And that our fruit's more of an extension of us than actually God. When in reality, when we read this passage properly, our fruit should be about God. It should be about seeing Him. Seeing the beauty of His salvation in our lives. See the beauty of his sovereign rule over the world. So we're going to look at two points this morning from this passage. One is the importance of seeking God's glory in our fruit bearing. That's going to be the first thing we're going to unpack. And the second thing we're going to unpack is identifying the, the proper rhythms, if you will, that produce God's glorifying fruit. All right? We're going to look at the importance of seeking God's glory in our fruit bearing and then identifying number two, the proper rhythms that produce God glorifying fruit. So let's look at that first one, right? How do we seek God's glory in our fruitfulness? Let's again look at verse eight and nine together. By this, my father is glorified that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples as the father has loved. I'm sorry, I'll stop right there. Verse eight. So that you would bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. There's three things I want you to notice about this one verse. And it's so powerful. The central, and, and I hope I've made this point, but let's just talk about it a little bit more, just so I can annoy you, all right? The central purpose of your fruit bearing is glory to God. Like, don't walk out of here missing this point. Everything we do as Christians... Everything we do as Christians centers on the majesty and the worthiness of our God in heaven. Everything. Why? Well, we know the answer, but let's just state it plainly. He is the author and creator of everything. Amen. And that he deserves, according to what he has revealed about himself, to be seen and, and to receive the glory that is his and his alone. And so then when we set our attentions on lesser glories, we are, in fact, idolaters. Even if those lesser glories could be very important realities in the world, they're still lesser nonetheless. When we put God at the center of the glory campaign, we eventually recenter all these other glories that may or may not be good things, and we reassign them according to how God has designed the world. But when we don't put God at the center we are going to ultimately fail in our aspirations for what is truly, truly glorious. He is not only the one who creates the world, but he specifically creates in covenant. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in our new members class. I mentioned it hopefully pretty frequently from here, that the way God creates is covenantally. He did it with Adam. He does it in Noah. He does it in Abraham, through Moses and David, and then most clearly in Jesus. Amen. And the reason why that's important is because we're not just talking about a God who's kind of out there that we don't know. But no, a God who's come near and close 
and has cut a covenant with us, who has drawn near to us. He's not someone we're trying to guess who he is. He actually is close to us, and he is most close to us when we understand his covenantal union with us as his people. He is revealed to those purposes. And so it stands to reason, when you think about it this way, that if God is the, as we talked about last week, the gardener of this vineyard, right? He's the vine dresser there in verse 1, and he is tending it in such a way that it would bear fruit, then the fruit that comes from that is for one purpose alone, the enjoyment in the glory of the gardener, God. And when we don't understand that, you and I end up in this, like, rats chasing our tails, trying to produce fruit that we can't produce on our own or never really satisfied with because we can't do it. So that's the first thing I want us to notice here, that the central purpose of our fruit bearing is the glory of God and that when God is gardening the vineyard, and produce for producing the fruit from us, that fruit is for him and no one else. It's God who enjoys the fruit. The gardener first gets the first right and responsibility to select the fruit from the garden and enjoy it. If you have a garden, you know what I'm talking about. You may be very generous with your garden, just like God is generous with his garden. But it is primarily God who gets to enjoy the garden first. Right? And just like you, if you have a garden, you know you get the right to make, you would be foolish enough to enjoy your garden first. Your own fruit, your own vegetation, whatever it may be. Or if you have you know, animals and you, are one, uh, uh, you have cattle or whatever, like you enjoy that first for you and your family first, and then you may share that with others. Our fruit first and foremost, and preeminently, is always about the glory of God. The second thing we want to notice here in this, in this verse is that the more fruit we bear, the more glory God gets. Have you ever thought about that? The more fruit you and I bear, the more glory God gets. Now, this is not to say that our fruitfulness increases God's glory in some way, right? That's not what we're saying here. Like, I, like nothing I'm going to do increases God's glory. And the opposite is true. Nothing I do decreases God's glory or, or maybe fail to do decreases God's glory. But the more fruit we bear, according to this text, is the more glory God gets. Rather, what we want to see in this is that the more fruit that we bear it radiates the glory of God. That he has created this vineyard, and therefore the product of that vineyard is his namesake. Not only does he get to enjoy it, but, the, but the, what, that, what comes out of that vineyard then gets spread out into the populace is his namesake. It, it, it says something about him, and his namesake carries his reputation, i.e. his glory throughout the world. You guys, we all know this, right? Think about our favorite products. If you even know the whole idea of a good wine, right? Like we, that wine is produced by a good vineyard, right? And depending on how good it is, says something about the person who started the vineyard, right? All right, let me bring it closer to home for some of you guys. Chick-fil-A, right? We all know how awesome Chick-fil-A is. There's a battle here a couple of years ago um, between the chick, chicken joints, right? Chick-fil-A, Bojangles, Popeyes, as if they even compare, right? Now, I like a good Bojangles every once in a while, but it ain't nothing compared to Chick-fil-A. Can't even match, right? That little humble chicken restaurant that blew up out, exploded out of the Atlanta area, at first into the nation's malls. If you're old enough, you know this. This is where the first Chick-fil-A you ever ate at probably was in a mall somewhere. And then eventually began to become such a big thing and became separate, self-standing, freestanding locations. 
But what's made it big and what I think in some ways has made it such a different than a lot of other franchises that are very well known and very popular is that this one, like, you know, like, if you've tasted a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich or a chicken biscuit, you know how amazing it is, right? And it goes throughout, and people know this, like, even when Chick-fil-A goes into areas that are less, like, southern-oriented, and people go, well, I don't really want Chick-fil-A in my neighborhood because of what they represent and what their owners represent, because we hear that all the time now in the world. Here's what happens. The Chick-fil-A still gets open. You know why? Because no one can resist the chicken. (laughs) This is secret to the southern sauce, right? Listen. The product says something about the creator. And at the end of the day, no one is eating a Chick-fil-A. I, I feed our pastor's group here once a month, and we go to different churches, and I usually get them Chick-fil-A or whatever. And uh, no one is coming in there thinking about how awesome Tom is because I bought him Chick-fil-A. They're thinking about, wow, boy, that family has started Chick-fil-A. They're awesome. They do it. They knew what they're doing. Right? I might get a little bit of side credit, but just because I was generous enough to do it, but no, nah, ain't nothing compared to the person who started this whole campaign. See, our fruit is not about us. It's about God. And when we bear more fruit, we bring more glory to God. It's just the way it works. Third thing I want us to notice from this passage is that if our fruit is first and foremost about the glory of God, and if our fruit, as we bear more of it, brings more glory to God, Here's what happens. Here's what happens for you and I. It proves that we are God's people. Now, when we say that, this is not to say that we are called, you and I are called to prove ourselves to be Christians. Or that somehow or another we are earning our salvation in a way that is in a way that we have to prove that we deserve to be saved. That's not what this passage is saying at all. Rather, the proof here that that, that John is trying to get us to see and what Jesus is trying to get us to see is that, our, that the fruit of it is a proof of the supremacy of God's power to redeem. That when the kind of fruit that God produces in our lives, it actually, like you and I stand back and go, wow, that is God. And I'm actually one of his people, in spite of my own self, in spite of how many times I try to run from God and I try to run after my own sin, like God still produces fruit in my life. Like it reminds us and it assures us that we are really God's. That we really have been saved. Our fruit is proof that we rest in and we know that we are saved because we see the hand of God in our lives. And I know Many of us in here struggle with that, right? Because we struggle. Like, am I, do I see enough fruit in my life? Am I happy with the fruit in my life? And that's a wonderful tension and struggle that we all should wrestle with. But what, you, what I try to do and I try to lead others to do is recognize that our fruit doesn't come overnight. It comes in a graduated sense, in progressive senses. And so as we continue in this communion with God and communion with this church, there is increasing fruit in our lives. And it's there that we find our assurance that God is doing something, even when I don't always see the, 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 the fruit of it myself. And so when you pull all this together in this first point, what I want us to do is just kind of summarize, right? Number one, our work in obedience is not about us. It's not about you. It's about God. If you're, if you are, if you're seeking to obey God because of how you look, you're doing it all wrong, <laughs> 
I'm doing it all wrong. Our works and obedience are not about us. Number two, we can and we should bear increasing fruit, though we must be aware of the danger of comparing our fruit to other people's fruit. So there's always that danger, right? That somehow or another, I've got to have the same kind of fruit that this person has or the same amount of it that this person has, and that's a dangerous place to be. But even if with that danger in mind, we should want and we should desire to see more fruit in our lives. And all of us right now should be sitting in our seats, our comfortable seats, asking ourselves, God, what kind of fruit do you want to see in my life? Am I seeing that fruit in my life? Not in a, not in a despairing sense, but in the sense of like, God, I need you to do this. And I want you to do this. And then the last thing I want to say before we move on to our second point is our fruit strengthens our assurance that God is the source of our salvation. Amen. When you see it, you just, you just have nothing, no other response but to say, God, thank you. Because God, I've, I've tried very hard to resist that many times in my life, and I bet I'm not alone in that. So that is what it looks like to seek God's glory in our fruit. Well, then how, what are some means and methods, if you will, and I, and I struggle to even want to say it that way, but let's just use that for now, proper rhythms that produce God-glorifying fruit. And I think we see here in verses 10 and 11, 9, 10, and 11, excuse me, um, three things that catalyst or spur us on to God-glorifying fruit. The first thing we see here in verse 9, let's read it. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abiding in Christ's love is the first rhythm that is essential to producing God-glorifying fruit. Christ's love says it very clearly here, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Christ's love is the fullness of the love of God in every way. What is God's love? Where does God's love spring from? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. Love is not God, but God is love. There's a big difference between the two. People want to deify love, and love's not to be deified. No, God is love. True love flows from the fullness of who God is in his very nature. So you can't talk about God's love and the fullness of it without God's holiness, his justice, his mercy, his sovereignty, his power, his patience. See, you and I can't dissect God's love from or, or, or pull it aside from God's wholeness, his whole attributes of himself, the oneness of God, if you will. God is holy, holy. God is wholly just. God is wholly sovereign. God is wholly merciful and powerful and patient and all the different things we would say there. And because of that, he is wholly love. Jerry Bridges' little book called Pursuit of Holiness is actually one of the most wonderful little studies you could ever do on, on this idea, and I hope that you would have a chance to read that. It's a classic. I'd also recommend Matthew Barrett's book called None Greater, which has an expansive view of God's attributes. So we can't talk about God's love if we divorce it from everything else God is. And so when we get to this idea, that's, that's important for us as we think about, so the, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, that then informs abide in my love. Christ has loved us out of the love of 
of his Father. He has loved us in the fullest way imaginable. And if that is true, then to understand the gospel properly, we must understand that the central to God, the Son's very purpose of coming in flesh and substituting himself in our stead and conquering death and hell and the and hell through the resurrection is found entirely in the Son's delight in the Father's love for him. To try to take the gospel and separate it from Jesus' own love that he has, has experienced from the Father towards him is to then lose the entirety of the gospel itself. That kind of love is the very drivetrain of the gospel. Jesus delights to save you because his Father delights in him. So therefore, we must abide, we must rest, as we said last week, we must dwell, we must continue in Christ's love so that we might bear fruit. There is nothing more glorifying to God, and let me hear this, nothing more glorifying to God than when His people rest in delight in His love. Not when His people grovel, because of their sin. Not when his people are trying to strong arm their obedience. See God, see, see, see God what I'm doing for you. No, when his people revel in his love is the most delightful thing to God. And that's where you will bear much fruit. And we do so by, as we talked about again in our Memorial class this morning, we, we engage in this through the ordinary means of grace, right? Through the local church, through the preaching of God's word, through the sacraments, all the things we talk about frequently here. And so the question for you and I, before we move on to the second and third point here of how to, uh, of how to produce this fruit or how to, you know, what, what rhythms produce this fruit, is what would it look like for you and I to truly bask in the love of God? Have you thought about that lately? You probably heard it, money makes the world go round. You probably even heard recently, love makes the world go around. Well, yes, but a particular kind of love makes the world go around. Glorious love makes the world go around. A holy love, God's love makes the world go around. Not some flimsy, sentimental idea of love, but love from God who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who saves us by sending his son to die on the cross for us and, and, and destroy death by being resurrected to new life. This is the love of God. How would that strengthen your resolve today to pursue fruitfulness in Christ if you just bask in the love of God today? Second rhythm is obeying God's commands. Look at what it says there, right? If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. Now, let's just be honest. We've heard this a lot lately in this passage in our study through John and we might be getting a little weary of being reminded that we need to obey God's commands. Because we know how, fall, how well short we fall of obeying God in fullness. And it might be to see this yet again Okay, God, I hear you, Jesus. I've got to obey your commands. I get it. I understand. And you might be going, my gosh, is this telling me that God is just trying to heavy hand me, put his thumb in my, thumb in my chest and trying to just push that on you? You're going to get this right, son. No. 
We were reminded of it because we need to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded of it over and over again. Not again, because God presses his thumb into our chest, but because our frame is weak. Our frame is fragile because of sin. And that our love for him and our love for his ways and our love for his law are challenged at every turn in this life. There's not a day that goes by that that's not challenged, is it not? And if that's true, I need to know the sweet mercy of God that says to me, son, get up. Not because I have the power to get up, but because God has given me the power to get up. Get up. Stumble a couple more steps forward. It's going to be good. We've already noted this a couple times over the last couple weeks, but God's commands are not burdensome for those who have been ransomed from their sin. Notice what Jesus says here. He's kept his Father's commandments and he abides in his love. So you can't even disconnect abiding in God's love from the commandments. It's, it's not saying that we are earn God's love, as I keep saying this over and over again, we're not earning God's love by keeping his commandments, but we are experiencing his love by keeping his commandments. I mean, like, think about what that looks like in our lives. Like, when we think about the fact that when we obey God, we are getting a deeper experience of God's love in our life. I mean, how many times have you been tasked with a job whether it's been a job, whether it's been a career or been some task from your spouse or something otherwise or something we've asked you to do here at Grace Church and you just do not want to do it. You just don't see the joy in being doing it. No one finds the joy in meaningful, ta- meaningful tasks. But then there's a day that happens. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. You see the real importance of that task and what it means to the whole. And all of a sudden your joy springs forth. Have you ever been in that moment? I've seen it happen here in our church. I've seen people who, I mean, who, who wants to clean a toilet? But there are people who joyfully clean toilets in our church. There are people who joyfully come up here and spend a Saturday and paint. There's people who joyfully come up here and, 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 and do things constantly, not because they're earning anything with God, not because they're trying to prove anything to you, but because they just have the joy of obeying God. You know why? Because they're basking in his love. He says here, Obey my commandments and you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, we need a regular reminder of why our obedience matters in this world. Even the small, meaningful meaningful tasks. Excuse me. And without the Spirit, we will only relate to God's law with drudgery. But as believers, we will find that God's law more and more delightful over time. We will struggle with our obedience, yes? And there'll be days when I don't want to do it. But, Christian, but the Christian life is a long, hard road in one direction, and it often takes years to see significant progress in that kind of joy in God, and it'll be obeying God. Amen. And that's what we should want and desire in our lives. That we would just want to obey Jesus increasingly out of the joy we have because we have experienced his love. And that leads us to the last observation here. Verse 11. And these things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that my joy, your joy may be full. 
So the ultimate reason our fruit exists is for the glory of God. But there is a penultimate here, according to Jesus, a penultimate, a, a secondary ultimate reason, if you will. Not the ultimate reason, but a, again, a penultimate reason. Your joy. God's glory is always ultimate, but the purpose is yet still a vital fruit of our life. Joy. You don't do one thing in your life that ultimately is devoid of joy. Even the most frustrating tasks you do. Because you know ultimately there's some good end in it. Our fruit brings joy to us. I already know this, that the, that the fruit brings deeper assurance of salvation and experience of God's love. But most importantly, we get to experience the joy of deeper communion with Christ. This is what Jesus is saying here. I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you. What is that? That's communion. That's union with Christ. I mean, think about the strongest relationships you and I have. And does not your delight in them bring about a deeper and more intimate union with them? With your spouse or your kids or your friends? You only get deeper union with them by the delight you have in that relationship. And therefore, by the deeper the reunion is, the more delight you get. And does not that which brings joy to those that we have union with also bring joy to us as well? So then think about it. If God commands us to do certain things and God delights in these things, then should we not delight in what God delights in and what Jesus delights in? Our fruit is a reflection of our union with Christ, and it's a reflection of that. And so when we have joy in, in Christ that now dwells in us through the work of the Holy Spirit, we have this wonderful union that we're living out in our lives, and there's just joy. Now, it, joy is not happiness, friend. <laughs> yes, you can be happy and joyful, but you can also be sorrowful and joyful. You can still despair at times. You can still struggle and still be joyful because you know that that joy is what's holding on to you. And what's the joy of Jesus? What's the joy he wants to put in you? And that joy is what? To accomplish the Father's will. We've seen this all the way through John so far. John 1, verse 12 and 13, But to all he did receive him, he, and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. Amen. This is what happens in our life. We're born into the will of God, and we are born by the will of God. Therefore, that is the union that you and I are living out of. John chapter 4, what does Jesus say? What's his joy? My food is to do the will of him who sent me pleased. Or when uh, Peter and John see him transfigured there with Moses and Elijah, and they're like, man, this is awesome. Right, let's just go set up a memorial here to all three of these guys. And, and God speaks from heaven. He says, this is my son. He is the only one worth the glory. He is the only one worth the worship. And he says to him, listen to him. See, that's the kind of love that, uh, that's the kind of uh, pleasing pleasure that God has in his own son. See, Jesus wants us to know that joy. He wants you so much this morning, brother and sister, to know that on your worst day, because of the work of his son Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection, he is pleased with you. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to experience that. He wants you to live in light of that. 
so that it would be the seedbed for what? Fruit. Don't forget what we're talking about here. For fruit. Only in our union with Christ do we experience the levels of joy that it cannot be found in any other way. To have union with Christ means we revel in the unmatched worth and beauty of God, to, to trust in the sure justice of God, to be immersed in the limitless wisdom of God, to rest in the riches of God's grace, love, mercy, and kindness, that His kindness that leads us to repentance. In Romans 3, for instance, our growth in our union is the fruit of Christ-like character. These are the things that happen in our life, not because of things you and I do, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and the joy we find in abiding in His love. So here's my conclusion. You may be here this morning, and I mentioned this earlier, you may be here this morning and you're discouraged. I can empathize with that. I, I, I have bouts of discouragement. I, have, I, I wonder, I sit and I think, man, Jesus, are, are, is the fruit that, that you want in my life, is it, being, is it being produced? And you worry about the quality of fruit that is emerging from your life. And here's what I want you to walk away from here this morning with. One, God is way more patient with you than you know. Way more patient with you than you know. And two, the answer is not some new, uh, fresh form of personal pietism. Rather, it's a deeper reflection of your union with Christ and abiding in Christ's work and love for you with deeper delight in God. Friend, this morning, if this is where you are, if you find yourself discouraged because of the fruit that you want to see but maybe you're not seeing in your life, Turn to him with a contrite heart, with the joy of knowing that God is pleased with you and ask him out of the pleasure your father has for you. Ask him right now to produce better and more enduring fruit in your life. Not out of despair, but because you have the rights as adopted sons and daughters of God to do so. Second question, though, maybe. Maybe you're here and you've just used your fruit as a means to justify yourself all your life and you don't know any other way around it. You're just like a little mini Pharisee running around all the time, right? God's more glorious than you. It's not about you. God is way more glorious than you. It's a lesson we all need to learn and relearn and relearn and relearn. God did not save you so that you could run around as a new generation of Christian Pharisee. He didn't save you for that. He didn't save me for that. God doesn't need your good works to make the world go round. He's done it quite well on his own without you. No. He delights in your good works because you are reveling in his power to save you. God doesn't need a new generation of Christian Pharisee. He needs a family who will revel in their adoption in Christ and seek to invite others into that gracious adoption themselves. Friends, the Lord's Supper is a picture of this. It's a picture of orphans made family because of Christ's work for you, and we are to enjoy it together. Where the Lord, where, 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 where you may be struggling with sin in your life, would you just repent of that? But let me say this, repent of it right now. And don't, you don't have to lash yourself a thousand times before you come to the Lord's Supper again. Repent and enjoy your union with Christ 
through this visible sign that our Savior gave you to enjoy. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us now as we finish up this morning. Jesus, thank you for this word.